It's the 1st of December, 2015, and this is episode 269. This show is intended for informational and educational purposes only. Cryptocurrency is new, exciting, and empowering, but we're not experts, just obsessed companions walking the road towards a more peer-to-peer future. Hi, and welcome to Let's Talk Bitcoin, a twice-weekly show about the ideas, people, and projects building the new digital economy and the future of money. My name is Adam B. Levine, and today we're at the Future of Digital Currency Conference, which took place in San Francisco last month. Today we're sitting in on the funding panel, entitled What Excites VCs in the Blockchain Space? After the break, we'll listen to the audience Q&A. Enjoy the show. Now we're going to move along to our first panel, What Excites VCs in the Blockchain Space? So as our moderator, we're welcoming back Garrett Kilman and introducing our panelists, Dan Moorhead, CEO of Pantera and Chairman of Bitstamp, and Bart Steffens, co-founder and managing partner of Blockchain Capital. Okay, great. Well, we're very fortunate to have uh, Dan and Bart here. You both have been very active in the, the Bitcoin investment space. I think one of the big questions on people's minds are, you know, a lot of investment was at least early on, was focused on maybe more consumer-facing applications of this technology where there's been a lot of interest of late in, in blockchain. Can you talk about what that means for investment, what that means for some of the early companies that are more consumer-oriented, and do companies today need to have a blockchain strategy to really attract investment? Sure. I think you know one of the ways to say it is the original companies were Bitcoin companies. Uh, and the companies that we're seeing and are excited about now are companies that are just trying to help consumers do something and Bitcoin's in the background. They're not trying to sell people Bitcoins. They're not trying to make people understand SHA-256. They're not trying to get into the complications of Bitcoin. They're just trying to use its power to um, do things, whether it's money movement or other cool um, 2.0 type applications and not kind of force the consumer to use or be conscious of Bitcoins. And I think that the best example of that is they're trying to attack money movement, especially cross-border money movement. Most people don't know how SWIFT works, but if they need to send a wire, they go to the bank, you know, they pay the fee, and SWIFT or ACH or Fedwire or something else in the background does it. And the companies that are, some of the companies we're most excited about are the ones that are doing that right now, helping a person send money to somebody else uh, and not mentioning blockchain or Bitcoin or any of the other stuff, but just getting it there faster, cheaper, uh, and quicker. Yeah, so I'm Bart Stevens. I'm one of the three managing partners and co-founders of Blockchain Capital. We're a San Francisco-based investment firm that's made 38 investments in the blockchain field. I'd echo a lot of Dan's comments. Um, You know, the internet uh, allows for the secure and instantaneous exchange of data, and the blockchain allows for the secure and instantaneous exchange of value. Uh, Most people love the internet, they love browsing the web, they can't really tell you how all the protocols work and how all the infrastructure layers work at a telecom um, level. And so, you know, I think that's that's an important uh, uh, observation to make. Um, Blockchain allows for the secure exchange of of assets of all type, and and we see Bitcoin as just the first first example of that. The blockchain and Bitcoin are inextricably linked, uh, but they're not limited. So lots of firms, like Wall Street firms, are taking a look at how the blockchain can speed settlement of traditional assets. And that's, that's been an area of uh, increasing interest for our firm over the last six months. Okay, great. 
Let's talk a little bit about uh, the traditional uh, companies that are investing in the space now alongside some of the early uh, venture investors. Uh, you know, Chain was, I think, one of the largest uh, recent deals. They had companies like Visa coming in for the first time. What, what does it mean for the industry to see Visa, Goldman Sachs, large financial institutions, some of which I think people thought, you know, Bitcoin and blockchain would be disrupting, now coming in and investing in the very companies that are going to be cannibalizing or disrupting them. What, tell, me, tell me about that dynamic. I'll start and then hand to Dan. There's a lot of um, financial incumbents that have realized one thing. Uh, blockchain technology is not going to get uninvented. So if you're a CTO at a major bank or a stock exchange, uh, you better have an answer for when your board of directors comes to you and says, uh, what does Bitcoin mean and what is blockchain technology? How can we use it to lower costs or offer uh, you know, better, faster, cheaper products and services to our customers? And so um, you know, I think uh, taking a look at Chain, which is one of our portfolio companies, taking a look at um, a lot of the consumer-facing companies that have interest from uh, traditional payment players, uh, companies that are facilitating asset exchange that have lots of interest from banks and brokerage firms, um, to me, this is all good. Um, there's some irony here, by the way. Uh, Satoshi's white paper, which is a beautiful thing, envisioned a peer-to-peer -peer electronic payment system that didn't need uh, central governments or banks involved. And here, um, these same financial incumbents now, in the last six months, are very much embracing this technology. Uh, our view is that it's all good. Uh, we want to see adoption. We want to see adoption by financial incumbents. We want to see adoption by uh, consumers, both here in, in kind of the, the US market and also in developing economies. Yeah, I'd say that the, um, the reason I find Bitcoin fascinating is that every year something really new and, and dynamic changes. And I think this year's story is the financial incumbents getting engaged with Bitcoin. Uh, a year and a half ago, I think there's only one S&P 500 company, uh, Fortress Investment Group, that was invested in Bitcoin or Bitcoin companies. Um, there are now at least a dozen big companies like Citi and Goldman that are invested directly in companies like Chain. Uh, and then there's 25 more big banks that are uh, paying a monthly stipend to support a bank consortium that's trying to build uh, their own private blockchain. So you've gone from one financial institution a year and a half ago to 25. I think in a year it's going to be hundreds of uh, banks that are engaged. And I, I think it, it is, you know, just like any other disruptive technology, you could be Kodak Film and just kind of hope. Kodachrome would actually last forever, or you could engage electronic cameras. Uh, and I think that's the way banks are, banks are looking at it now. They, you know, for four years, they were successful in completely ignoring Bitcoin, uh, but it is difficult to ignore it now. Great. So uh, earlier we talked about the, the roughly billion dollars that's been announced, that's been public, you know, publicly announced, invested in, in Bitcoin startups. Uh, when I looked at that number vis-a-vis -vis what's been invested in FinTech, financial technology, fintech is actually quite a bit larger than what's been invested in Bitcoin. Um, but I, I'm wondering, where are things going? Are we seeing, I, I, think, I think many people kind of looked at Bitcoin as kind of its own kind of unique kind of silo, if you will, where fintech was this other thing. Are the lines going to start blurring between, say, what's a fintech investment and what's a Bitcoin investment? Um, where, where, what's going to happen around these kind of two distinct categories? Are they going to lose their distinctness? I think so. I th you know, every time you have a new technology, you want to draw an analog to something we already understand. Mm -hmm. You know, electronic mail is supposed to be just like real snail mail, but actually it's opened up 
incredibly dynamic ways to communicate. I think Bitcoin is that. It's not a cryptocurrency or it's not a replacement for gold 2.0 or whatever. It's an altogether new thing. Um, I think Susan Athe said it best. Um, she called it a post-currency ledger. And that's really what it is. It's not a currency. It's the thing that comes after currency. Currency is just a little piece of paper we carry around to connote a ownership piece on a ledger and then you know governments print more of the ledger all the time. And Bitcoin is a new thing that comes after currency. So I think that is um, um, you know, part of the, the dynamic that, that uh, banks are trying to get their head around. Yeah, so in the last uh, year, we've seen the nomenclature change a little bit. Bitcoin has bled into blockchain. And I think blockchain will kind of bleed into fintech uh, at some level. Um, what's incredibly exciting as a venture capitalist exclusively focused on this sector is just the sheer brain power of the people involved in this sector. Um, there's been a billion dollars of VC money that has gone into what we call blockchain-enabled technology companies. But the people that are involved in these companies are incredibly passionate and smart. I mean, it is a great time to be an entrepreneur. It's a great time to be a venture capitalist to help disrupt these industries. And um, it's, uh, it, the momentum is, is, is switched a little bit towards blockchain, but um, all these people are more or less working on the same problems. And we're also beginning to see um, people taking a look at blockchain technology outside of financial services. So how can the blockchain and its immutable record capability uh, affect things like identity, like our last speaker talked about, or uh, title and asset transfer, or tracking royalties? Um, there's lots of cool companies that are being started that are, addressing, that are taking a look at the, uh, the awesome features of the blockchain and saying, how can we disrupt industries, uh, not just financial services? Great. I'd Great. add to that that you know, I, I think the fintech label uh, doesn't fit what Bitcoin is. Bitcoin spans, you know, dozens of different sectors uh, that many of them have nothing to do with finance. Uh, you know, there's a company we're invested in called Filament that's putting these uh, low-frequency radio meshes around things as boring as power poles in the Australian desert. You know, it has nothing to do with finance, but it's using the blockchain because it's a uh, uh, write-only database. Mm -hmm. Great. So. A lot of these conferences, at least the ones that I, I get invited to, happen inside the United States and Western Europe in the you know, developed world. Uh, can we talk a little bit about uh, the, you know, the, the developing world, if you will, and the opportunities for Bitcoin and blockchain in the developing world, and, and what maybe sometimes we, we miss or we forget sitting here in San Francisco, maybe companies that, that you've invested in that are focused on the developing world, uh, what's your view on the developing versus developed world for this this technology? Uh, that's a great question. I, th I think there is a very big distinction uh, for those of us in a you know um, stable developed country like the United States. We don't really notice that our paper money is de eroding slowly but steadily all the time, and credit cards work. And you know um, we've never had our savings confiscated at, at our bank. But in the developing world, that happens all the time. Um, so I think Bitcoin will be a very, very, um, have a huge impact in the developing world. And you see the future of money isn't being created in Silicon Valley. It's actually happening in Kenya, where they have uh, now processed 45% of their GDP this year on M-Pesa. And I think that's a great example of where the future is going. Um, I think you're going to see a peaking in um, the number of people in the world that have bank accounts. If you think about it, <clears throat> we never had more than 1.2 million, 1.2 billion people uh, on Earth have a landline, and it's now 800 
million people. The other six billion people on Earth went straight to mobile phones. And I think we're going to see the same thing with banking. They're going to skip banks and go straight to mobile money. And Bitcoin will be the kind of interoperability layer between, say, the Kenyan M-Pesa system and the Tanzanian system and all the different uh, systems around the world. So I think in the developing world, there's a clear need for mobile money solution, and Bitcoin uh, sorts out all those problems. Yeah, in my briefcase, I, for a, kind of a party trick, I carry around a, a banknote from Zimbabwe that says $100 trillion on it. Um, and it's printed uh, at the same printer that does the SWIX banknote. So it looks and feels like a real piece of currency, but it literally says $100 trillion on it. So, you know, dance points are good ones. Um, a lot of the best use cases for Bitcoin, the currency, are in developing economies. Um, with, with mobile phone technology, you have uh, essentially a bank in your pocket. And if you live in uh, a country that's had historically high inflation or currency devaluations, Bitcoin is a legitimate um, option that you can consider. Uh, as the, all of us living here in California, we get a little spoiled with the US dollar being the reserve currency. But, um, and you've seen a lot of venture capital has flown into, uh, has flown into uh, companies in North America. That's primarily as a result of that's where the venture capitalists are. But a lot of the best use cases are indeed in developing economies. Just building on that last point, I mean, should more entrepreneurs be starting their companies in Argentina, in Kenya? I know obviously there are companies in those places, but a lot of them are here in Silicon Valley. I mean, how big of a problem is that for, uh, you know, the, the industry if a lot of the opportunities are overseas, if you will, but a lot of the companies and money is here? Or is there not, I mean, is it diversified enough that it's not really an issue? So, um uh, Pantera and Blockchain Capital are both an investor in BitPesa, which is an African-based uh, company. And so I think when you see specialist firms uh, like, like ours that are on stage today, we're looking globally. Um, you know, Bitcoin is, is a global phenomenon. The technology uh, is, is distributed in nature and, and, and global. It's usable by everyone, but owned by nobody. And, and that means uh, powerful things in, in developing economies. I think uh, traditional uh, fintech venture capitalists are maybe a little less adventuresome into going to uh, emerging economies, but uh, I think that'll change over time as use cases get built out uh, in emerging economies. Great. Um, you know, <clears throat> for those of you who don't know, Bitcoin's over 500 bucks again today. <laughs> and so the hype is on, right? So everybody's <laughs> back, Bitcoin's going again to the moon is the new tweet that everybody's publishing. And it brings in uh, one of my favorite websites, it's called buttwithbitcoin.com. And every day it randomly puts up a business model and then puts butt with Bitcoin on the end. And I think we're gonna see a lot of those business models come out in the next three or four months. <clears throat> the business models we like are ones where an entrepreneur was trying to solve a problem, uh, like uh, the um, CEO of BitPesa, Elizabeth Rosella. She was in Kenya, she was trying to solve a problem and then she happened upon Bitcoin and realized it's actually way better than the you know, Western Union and other payment rails out there. Same deal with the CEO of Coins.ph, Ron Hose. He was in the Philippines, he was trying to solve a problem, and he just stumbled upon Bitcoin. And those are the companies that are ripping because there, there is an actual problem. It's not trying to figure out, well, what can I do but add Bitcoin to it? It's a problem. It costs uh, the hundreds of millions of people that, that uh, have to migrate to work. It, they spend a month a year working for Western Union. And then their families only get to keep the other 11 months' wages. So it's a really, really expensive uh, proposition. There's a huge pain point. So these companies are trying to solve it. And I think, um, you know, uh, Garrett's question about, like, where are the opportunities? We're co-invested in, uh, in Africa. 
we're invested in an Asian uh, cross-border money movement company, and then there's one uh, in Argentina because that country is the poster country for Bitcoin. Great. Um, well, let's just stay with, we've got a, maybe time for one or two more questions, and I'd like to get the audience uh, time to ask these gentlemen questions, but uh, let's stay with remittances for a second. Uh, so some of these, there's been some debate, public debate recently, um, you know, about whether or not Bitcoin can really be disruptive in the remittances space. Even people within the remittance world have come out and said the last mile challenge, for example, is, is quite costly for, for Bitcoin companies. Um, they lack the infrastructure of an M-Pace that has all these kiosks around Kenya, for example. Um, there's the currency conversion issues, et cetera. Can you speak to uh, some of the challenges maybe on the consumer side of remittances? And also, Dan, you and I have talked about you know, how B2B actually might be a little easier. Maybe you can talk about that. Yeah, I think it's, it's, um, that is the right answer. Is the remittance is a uh, you know, thing people talk a lot about. It's very high profile. But the amounts of money are pretty small. They average about $150 per transaction. So it's fairly expensive to go acquire those new accounts. Um, obviously, most of the people that are um, using remittance are on the lower end of the technologically connected uh, spectrum. So it's difficult to, to um, uh, you know, find those customers. Um, as more people have smartphones, as there are more you know, um, ATM networks that accept Bitcoin and, and things, it's getting easier and easier to do the last mile. But this, I think a much, more, uh, much larger and more relevant use case is the small to medium-sized business international wire uh, pain point. Only 15% of cross-border flows are remittance. The other 85% are corporate. Um, and uh, a huge fraction of that is in the kind of $1,000 to $10,000 uh, transaction size, and that's where uh, we're very excited about the opportunity there. And a company called Align Commerce, that's in San Francisco, um, is attacking that. And I, I think that's, you know, there's a lot of kind of Bitcoin hand wavy stuff out there. That's actually happening. Mm -hmm. um, you know, cross border transactions using the Bitcoin payment rail in our index are up 700% this year. So it's, it really is um, happening because it's solving a real issue. Yeah, I'd agree with all those comments. And just a quick note on, on Bitcoin price. Um, you know, when I talk to people about blockchain technology and Bitcoin, it's amazing the diverse and passionate reactions that it elicits from people. Some people foam at the mouth and they really hate it. Um, other people that are, are just amazed by the sheer brain power that is in the industry. But it's, it's worth noting that you could buy all the Bitcoins in the world for $7 billion. That's not a lot of money. So this industry has massive mind share, it has massive computing power, it has tons of venture capital, has the smartest people in the world working on it. It's a really, really small industry still. I mean, Dropbox is valued at $10 billion, and there's 140 other unicorns running around Silicon Valley. So it's important to remember we're in the early days here, and um, all, the, all the things that we've talked about on stage today are the makings of, of, of a successful industry, and it's why venture capitalists like Dan and I get excited to be involved. Great. Okay, one last question, then we'll open it up to, to audience Q&A. So a lot of money was invested, uh, you know, 2013, 2014, um, close to a billion. Um, adoption in some areas has is, is maybe been a little slower than I think some people have hoped. Um, are we going to see some kind of shakeout? Should companies be thinking about a long game rather than a short game? And, uh, you know, in gen I'm generalizing here, of course, but... Um, what, what's going to happen? I mean, we've seen some companies like BitPay start to do layoffs. Um, there's pivots maybe that are underway. Just give me a sense of kind of the macro kind of venture perspective with the money that's come in, 
adoption and, and what's going to happen in the next six, 12 months? Yeah, so um, a lot of this is a function of the price of Bitcoin. So take the last three weeks of trading and put it aside, uh, which have been great, uh, by the way. Um, but before that, we were in a mini Bitcoin bear market. Um, it was down 70% from its high. And when that happens, uh, people's psychology changes. Um, this is in some ways a technological innovation. It's also a, a big social experiment. And uh, what we've seen with the payment processors, you mentioned BitPay, is that when um, the price of Bitcoin drops dramatically, people tend to hunker on and, and hold on to their Bitcoin. They don't want to spend it for goods and services. So um, to me, what's so exciting about this industry is even in the face of a, a pretty steep, you know, top to trough uh, bear market of 70%, of there's still massive innovation and lots of people wanting to get involved in these projects. So um, mm -hmm. the price, uh, as Dan alluded to earlier, has, has moved up from the low 200s to evidently 500 uh, since we've been speaking. Um, and, that's a good, and that's a good thing. Um, and because, you know, we both track lots of metrics, transactions and wallet growth. You mentioned some of the slowing and deceler uh, decelerating metrics in that. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of that uh, has to do with the price. And as the price moves back up, I think you'll get new entrants and new innovations. And, and uh, we already talked earlier about a lot of the financial incumbents that are starting to embrace the underlying technology of the blockchain. I guess the perspective I share is, you know, uh, technological disruptions take decades to, to play out. And um, Bitcoin's six years old. I mean, it's just a little toddler and, you know, has some fits and it kind of works now and again, but isn't yet perfect. And I think the internet analog is overused in anything anyone hopes will be hyperbolically successful. Mm -hmm. But since Bitcoin is a internet protocol, you know, it's, it's, it is valid. And I think we're in the kind of early 90s internet. ARPANET was around for 20 years. TCPIP was around for 20 years. You know, 1% of the population used it. No one else cared. Then you get the browser and it made it easier for people to use it. But in the early 90s, the internet sucked. You know, you had a 8K baud modem screeching and you could barely download hardly anything and there were no applications, nothing really happened. That's Bitcoin, it kind of sucks right now because there aren't any <laughs> applications, can't really do anything with it. Uh, retailers charge you the same price they do for a credit card transaction when Bitcoin's way better for them, they should give you like a four or 5% discount for using Bitcoin. So we're just in that kind of awkward period. Jared um, said there's been a billion dollars come into Bitcoin in the last 12 months and that is three times the amount of money that went into the internet in 1995 when Amazon and eBay were funded. So that's going to hire a lot of developers. They're going to throw a lot of things out there. Some of them are going to fail, of course, but some are going to work. And then a mass adoption will come from that. And it'll take decades for this to fully play out. Today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin is brought to you by the newly launched LTB Network Marketplace. When you're visiting letstalkbitcoin.com slash marketplace, make sure to check out the John Barrett song pack in the featured part of the store. For only $7, you can support the man behind the music, as well as the On Hiatus Bitcoins and Gravy Show, and get a set of high-quality DRM-free tunes for your trouble, plus our heartfelt thanks. And if you're a community member who'd like to list a service or item for sale on the LTB Marketplace, contact Adam at letstalkbitcoin.com to start the conversation. 
The magic word for today's episode is angel. That's A-N-G-E-L. Angel. You've got until the 8th of December to visit letstalkbitcoin.com or the Let's Talk Bitcoin iOS app to enter it for your share of the listener rewards. And now, let's rejoin the panel for some questions from the audience. Let's go to the, uh, the audience uh, for questions now. We've got a hand up front here, Matt. What in the last six months have you looked at, if you can talk about it, that you think is just too early? You know, maybe a year or two early, or maybe even more than that. Are there any things out there that you think are going to be interesting in five years, but really aren't right now? Yeah, it might be an unpopular answer, um, and I like the use case, uh, but IoT and Bitcoin, um, so these are machine-to-machines uh, talking to each other with small amounts of, of payments going back and forth. I think it's an incredibly exciting um, idea. I also think it's probably um, the area of large labs at Samsung, you know, at IBM, at some of these uh, larger institutions that, are, that have a, a broader IoT strategy, and they need... Um, they need payments uh, from machines and machines. So I think it's super exciting over the long to intermediate term. I think over the short term, uh, it, it, it's um, the, the ticket and spending and research and development in that area are, are high enough that it very well could be the purview of, of larger technology companies and incumbents. I've got a great answer to that one. I passionately believe this is going to completely change the world. Voting. But it's going to be like 20 years from now. It is not <laughs> now. And so we've looked at a bunch of companies that are doing voting. And um, the incumbents want no part of it, right? Governments want no part of an immutable database that's verifiable. And even the companies that do do voting, like corporate proxy battles, there are huge companies like Donnelly & Co. that already make billions of dollars doing that and they want no part of switching. So um, I think that's the one that's gonna take some time. And I voted yesterday. I actually enjoyed going to our little town hall in Woodside and you know, casting my vote. And I like that. And so I think it's gonna take people like 20 years to trust blockchain voting. There is an experiment in Cambridge though. I think this is gonna happen this fall that they've approved 10% of the citizens being allowed to vote on the blockchain. And again, it might get decayed or it might get, you know, canceled or whatever. But if that happens, that'll be a first sign. But I think voting is one of those things that's going to really change the world for the better, but it might take a couple decades. Great. Time for maybe a couple more questions, if anyone... Uh, can you comment on the, uh, the growth of the limited partner base that you guys have, and if you see any of those as strategic investors that could then partner with the startups you're investing in? Sure. I think the, the Will's question is a good one. That uh, um, a couple of years ago, if you pitched somebody Bitcoin, you know, uh, they were like, you're crazy. That's, you know, it's not, it's kind of a skanky brand. We don't want to invest in that. And just over the last three or four months, I think with Goldman investing and sitting and all these people investing, uh, much more institutional investors are, are looking to invest in. Most of our investors want to co-invest on these deals. They want to get direct exposure because they're trying to learn something about what's happening. Yeah, I'd echo that. Um... You know, there's, there's a little, within the, the Bitcoin and blockchain community, there's a little bit of a squabbling over Bitcoin versus blockchain or permissionless ledgers versus permission ledgers. To me, this is more or less a semantic difference. Um, large financial institutions are going to um, tiptoe and walk before they run in adopting this technology, especially if it's, uh, it's mission critical. So we've been talking to a lot of financial institutions and banks, and they're very excited about blockchain technology. Um, some of the hardcore technologists understand that that is Bitcoin technology, the blockchain is Bitcoin, they're inextricably linked, but they're kind of like winking a little bit and they're saying, hey, let me get around the compliance department, let me get around the legal team because Bitcoin's got a real bad brand problem. 
And so for us, whether uh, large financial incumbents and Fortune 500 companies are messing around with Bitcoin's blockchain or side chains or federated chains or permission chains, you know, back in the mid to late 90s, Fortune 500 companies didn't connect directly to the internet. They were scared of it. They, they didn't connect to the web. They had projects called intranets. So um, no one uses that term anymore, intranet. But that's, to me, that's illustrative of the fact that large uh, companies, they, they walk before they run. And so I, I think we're seeing a lot of that behavior now. Part of it's kind of wrapped in blockchain versus Bitcoin language. Part of it's just honest experimentation. Hi. Um, when you're looking at investments, do you prefer it to be open source or not? Because when I look at Bitcoin, I don't think anyone in the room who's a software engineer would know that Bitcoin, there's a lot of stuff in there, but it's not that complicated that you couldn't get a team of two or three, maybe four people and figure it all out. And so a lot of, a lot of the companies that perhaps that you want to invest in, if they're open source, do you sometimes feel, well, you know, banks, for example, if we look at the financial industry, aren't necessarily going to hand over you know, their control and their business to a technology provider you know, outsource it when they can do it themselves. And you know, they've, got very good, they've got a lot of good people, they've got a lot of funds available to them. So is that, is that something that you look at and say, well, it's too much open source, you don't want everything to be out there? Or would, would you prefer to have something which is more proprietary solution, which would be back more like, sort of like the 80s and 90s and on Wall Street? So the legacy businesses obviously have the customer relationships, they have the capital, they have all the power. Um, in 2000, I was the founder of the first big uh, FX dealing platform. Was, majority owned by Citibank and Reuters and you know Deutsche Bank and JP Morgan those big banks so I have first-hand experience of watching big consortiums um, they sometimes work really well and they sometimes don't because the banks all want to kill each other they're hyper competitive with each other so um, we're backing companies we think have a product that could be successful um, they might get bought out by the legacy companies ultimately or they might get killed you know if the legacy companies get it together and as long as you have you know a handful of bets um, from an investment standpoint, it, it should be okay. Yeah, open source versus proprietary is, is not as important um, for us. We want to see, uh, we like to listen to the customers. There's a certain amount of um, early Bitcoin companies that had a, a revolutionary fervor to them. Um, and they're, they're about crypto anarchy and uh, revolution and they don't like central banks and governments. And that's all well and good to have um, those politics. Um, I happen to be a libertarian myself, but I'm, I'm, on my day job, I'm a businessman. And businessmen, uh, they listen to the customer. And so if the customer wants to uh, uh, experiment with uh, blockchain technology um, and they call it something else or they want a proprietary solution or they want to be a part of a consortium, you know, we counsel our companies to listen to the customer. Um, uh, that we've, we've arguably run out of uh, Austrian economists and, and gold bugs and crypto libertarians. Those people already own Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. And so uh, ironically, we now need uh, uh, adoption by financial incumbents and large Fortune 500 companies. And, and to me, that's a good thing. It's okay, it's okay to uh, distrust central governments and central bankers. Uh, and you can hold your Bitcoin and feel good at night. It's also okay for the billion dollars of venture capital that's gone into this industry to go sell to uh, financial incumbents and, and have increasing revenues and eventually cash flows. Uh, I, don't, I, I don't think that's an either or. I think that's kind of a false dichotomy. I think that's just about all the time we have. Please join me in giving uh, our, our distinguished panel a, a hand of applause. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for today's show comes courtesy of the Future of Digital Currency Conference, Garrick, Dan, and Bart. This episode was very lightly edited by Adam B. Levine and featured music by Jared Rubens and General Fuzz. Any questions or comments? Email adam at letstalkbitcoin.com. 
Have a good one.